Amen. All right, as Jesse said, we are back to sexual temptation and adultery. And if you've been in Proverbs with us for a while, you're like, man, this is a lot of talk about adultery and sex. There's probably, we probably had more conversations about sex in this church in the last couple months than all of us have collectively in church in our lifetimes. Um, And we still got a couple weeks more to go. Um, And in our day, we can understand that this is more pertinent than ever. I mean, Solomon understands the temptation for his young sons, especially if you have young boys or older boys or, or grown men or, or old men. Um, this is something that is always pertinent, and the church has not, as we've said, done a great job at dealing with this and dealing with it directly. Uh, to give you an illustration of this, and this is as close as I get to a Valentine's Day reference, so um, just setting that out front. Uh, my uncle tells a story, true, true story, of... Uh, he's a um, retired pastor and uh, preaches and does a lot with, with married counseling, things like that. So he was speaking at a uh, Valentine's Day weekend retreat. And so, um, you know, he, he, he preaches and then they split the men and the women up. His wife leads the women, he leads the men. And so uh, a doctor gives an analogy. So he's talking about the uh, the sex drive of, of, of men and like how, how much of a reality this is throughout all of our lives. And so the doctor gives this anecdotal um, reference to an old man who he performs a surgery on. The man is 92. He's under anesthesia. He's out for hours. And he wakes up. And his, the first thing he says is, hey, doc, when can I be with my wife? And he used more direct language. Um, and so uh, ladies might not understand this. But every guy in here is like, oh, man, 92? Really? Um, But this is why this comes up again and again and again. This is how God has wired us. But also, the fall has has given us this insatiable appetite. And the appetite is not easily satisfied. It is is easy to be drawn away for for other things, um, and especially in our day. It's like every week there is some new grotesque example of sexuality being shoved down the throat of children in, in schools and in popular culture and in popular music. And the church needs to be able to address these things and address them directly and confront them for what they are. Um, so we'll look at adultery and sexual temptation in this text, but what we'll also look at is sexual temptation as a microcosm for sin itself. And sin in its claims of fulfillment. Sin that can never deliver. Because there's something about the forbidden fruit. There's something about the promise of the grass being greener over there. And the things we can't have always seem sweeter. Just like a little kid, like his candy looks better than mine. You, you may have the same thing in your hand, but you want what's over there. And that's sin's promise. What you have right here is not good enough. I've got something better for you. This call to the forbidden fruit promises pleasure to our flesh. We think it will last, but that's the lie. Sin can never deliver on its promises. Sin never gives lasting pleasure, and it has deadly consequences. So I want to begin at the beginning, going back to the first sin. So if you turn your Bibles to Genesis... 
the first sin, the first lie in the garden in Genesis 3, there's an appeal to Eve's hunger. But her hunger goes deeper than the fruit. It isn't just a a natural want, like she needs sustenance. There were plenty of trees. God gave her more than enough to eat from. But her hunger was deeper. Her desire was deeper. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say every lie, every sin starts with, did God actually say? You shall not eat any of, uh, excuse me, eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a lot of parallels in this passage. I want, to, I want you to pay attention to these, these details. Did God really say, um, not just eat it, if you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin is given. Any text we look at, every text assumes that we live in a fallen world. Every text assumes that we, just like Adam and Eve, believe the lie. Putting in doubt everything that God has said. Did God really say? Not only would we have done the same thing in their place, but when they took of the fruit, they took it of it on our behalf. Adam, as our covenant head, we all being in Adam, the word Adam meaning man, mankind, if you're alive and in this room, you are in Adam, you ate that fruit. And you are still susceptible to believing that lie again and again. And so our text is going to be a specific warning against lust and adultery, but it also provides a gospel framework. Because this text will give us advice in the first section against our appetites in the middle section. Uh, to avoid the aftermath in the last section. So that's where we'll, we'll be going. Looking at the advice of parents against our appetites, leading to the aftermath in the conclusion. So picking up in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, let's read. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a, is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts, after, hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. 
He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his grace will not, excuse me, his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, may we not grow callous to its sobering truths. May we not grow indifferent to our own sin. May we not be like the world who is so desensitized and depraved that we live in and accept and celebrate wickedness. Lord, we pray that your word here would be that lamp and that light, that we would embrace and accept your discipline, that we might be preserved, that your gospel would take root for those of us who know and trust in Christ again and again, day after day, the good news that we are delivered from our sin. And maybe those here this morning for the very first time, that they look directly into their sin and know that they are lost and hopeless and their destruction is sure they will not go unpunished. Lord, we ask that your word accomplish its purpose. You open eyes and transform hearts. You will convict the sinner and comfort the righteous in your truth. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, before we go any further, this first section is so beautiful, 20 through 23, really. Uh, and there's, if you've, parents, if you've not heard the um, Seed Family Worship, uh, they do a great job with this. It's a song called Way of Life. I encourage you to look it up. It's, it's word for word singing through this, not just parents, but everyone. Um, we, we talked about last week, and we'll talk about again this, this week, the, the discipline of knowing Scripture ahead of time and being able to sing it and sing it with your, your children. So this one is called The Way of Life, uh, and so it's on these first few verses. And Sheree played it for me last night, and I'm going to be humming it in my head as I'm preaching it. Um, but if you, uh, those are great tools uh, because you will begin to learn Scripture through that. So it's a good uh, tool for everyone. So let's jump in. Verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So we've seen this formula many times. Commandments, teaching, father, mother. What's assumed throughout the entire book of Proverbs is that the parents are godly. This does not have in mind ungodly parents. These are parents who are speaking as God's instruments of instruction. And what's also assumed is that the son will honor his parents by listening and it will be for his own good if he heeds their advice. So it's assumed that there's godly parents. It assumes that the son knows his, his parents are giving them godly instruction. And so this is the, the basis for everything that's going on in this book. Caring parents, sending their son out into the world, preparing him to walk through the, this sinful world of darkness. And everything we will see in the next couple verses, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Um, when you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will, they will talk with you. Should sound familiar. This is the same charge and the same language given to parents uh, when the law is given in Deuteronomy 6. So I'd like you to turn there. If you don't know where Deuteronomy is, you're going uh, to the left in your Bible. It's the fifth book in. Uh, so Deuteronomy chapter 6, very famous text 
And so this instruction that the parents are giving now is given to the parents then. And I'll tell you today, parents, this is still a good practice. These are things you should still be doing. This is not just for Israel. This is for the people of God always. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning um, in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There's that bind it to your heart language. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is what Solomon is doing with his children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That same language that we see in, in Proverbs. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, tie them around your wrist, and they shall be as frontlets dangling between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This instruction is good then, in the days of Moses, is good in the days of Solomon, it is good today. Know who your God is. Love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. You as parents, you as Christians, take his word, bind it around your wrist, carry it with you when you go to bed, when, when you wake up in the morning, and especially parents. Do not think that your children will figure it out on their own. You have been given them as a charge. You have been given responsibility and you will give an account for how you lead them. And so lead them in this way. This is imperative. This is a non-negotiable for parents. So that's why this instruction from the parents can be taken as scripture because it is taken from scripture. All right, so let's look at the uh, binding and tying. So bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. Um, this encourages learning that's always with you. Your heart is inside and your neck is on the outside. So inside, what, what flows from your heart, good or evil, anything always, your uh, character flows from the, out, from the inside out. It begins in your heart. Make sure that these things are on your heart, but also make sure they're around your neck on the outside. So basically, Wherever, whenever you, you wake up, your, your heart is, is pumping, your thoughts are going, your emotions are, are um, influencing the way that you think and see things, make sure that these commandments are there. And your neck. If you leave the house with your neck, which I hope you do, uh, these things should be around your neck. Everywhere you go, they go. And that's the picture here. And um, so if you want to, before we get into the temptings and the traptings, if you want to avoid them, Parents are starting, you can avoid this by doing this, keeping and guarding the word of God. And so you want to avoid these sins and trappings, be in and know and apply the teachings of our Lord. Um, so for example, look at something you shouldn't. You can be like Job and make a covenant with your eyes in Job 31. If you're struggling with, with money and you're, you're consumed with the things of this world and, and uh, your entire identity is how much I can, I can make or how much I achieve, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 to store up treasures in heaven. If you are worried about tomorrow, you don't think that, that God is going to provide, you don't know how you're going you're to pay bills or, or you're this, this person who's constantly worried and constantly anxious and constantly stressed, Jesus tells us in Luke 12, fear not. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Aren't you more valuable than the flowers of the field and the birds of the air? And my father provides for them. I could go on and on and on and on. 
Every temptation that we have is given an answer in Scripture. And if you hide it in your heart and you carry it with you around your neck, figuratively speaking, then you will avoid a lot of these, these, these pitfalls. But so often, we know this in our own lives, and we know this with brothers and sisters that we love dearly, when they're struggling with something, the question Jesse and I will ask as pastors is, how's your devotional life going? How much time are you spending in the Word? How much time are you spending in, in prayer? And typically, there is a direct correlation. We'll get into that more a little later. Um, also inherent here is the when you lie down and when you rise. This is a, a mirrorism. Um, it's a term that we, we lose. Like, so when you say young or old, from one extreme to the other, it's everything in between. This is God's word for all of, of life. Um, and so there's another interesting thing here in 22 and 23, and you don't get this in any of the English translations. Um, but to make this make sense, the, the uh, pronouns and the articles are added. If you don't understand English, here's what it means. So the, the they's in verse 22 and the the's in verse 23, the pronouns and the articles are added so that it makes sense when we read it. But in Hebrew, these are all singular feminine uh, nouns. And um, so how it could read, when you read in the Hebrew is when you walk, she will lead you. When you lie down, she will watch over you. When you awake, she will talk with you. For her commandments, are, or her commandment is a lamp and her teaching is a light. So what that's doing here is it's comparing the word of God to Lady Wisdom. And it's contrasting her to the adulterous woman, the Lady Folly. For, for the rest of uh, chapter 6 through chapter 9, this is the, the uh, adversarial relationship between the woman of wisdom and the woman of folly. Listen to her. Listen to Lady Wisdom. She will walk with you. She will guide you. Um, that's where we're actually going to begin next week. If you just look at chapter 7, the first couple verses. Same formula. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live Keep my teachings as the apple of the eye. Bind them around your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Same formula. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So this contrast between the two women is, is posed before the son. Also what I want you to see in 22 is the shepherding imagery. All of these verbs are shepherding verbs, leading, watching, talking. It's, um, so I want to kind of walk through each one of these. So notice the progression that we're going through here. Sin is the given. Sin points us to the law, the commandments and teachings of God. The law points us to the promise or the gospel. And the gospel tells us about a shepherd, the shepherd who will lead, who will watch, who will talk. Let's look at each one of these. When you walk, they or she will lead you. This is what a shepherd does. A shepherd provides for and cares for its sheep by being up front. They, they follow him. He's their example. He's the one who brings them to the safety of the passage, passage, or, um, pastures. And he's the one who leads them away from the wolves. This is what Christ still does. He leads us through his spirit. He leads us through, his, through his, his word. This is the gospel promise. You, like sheep who have gone astray, 
Sheep are simple, fearful creatures. We are simple, fearful creatures. And we do not want to be off alone by ourselves, not knowing where to eat, not knowing how to feed ourselves. We are as good as dead. But the gospel promises a good shepherd. The gospel promises one who will come for you. He will gather you. He will bring you into his fold, and no one can snatch you out of his hands. And this is associated with his word because he is the word made flesh. This this shepherd imagery of leading, also watching. He will, when you lie down, he will watch over you. When you awake, this should make us think of Jesus promising his disciples in the Great Commission. I will be with you to the end of the age. I'm telling his people in Israel, I will never leave you, never forsake you. If you are mine, if you are my sheep, every moment that you are alive, every moment that you are aware of your life, from when you wake up to when you go to sleep, I will be with you. I will watch over you. I am your guard. And you get those, those, those promises and you get those proofs in his word. And then the last one. When you awake, they will talk with you. This is a conversation. Um, this is being able to communicate back and forth, something that sheep do not have. But this is something that good shepherds would do to their sheep. They would, they would calm them by talking to them. They would, they would sing to them to put them at ease. And we have the beauty of communication with our Savior. Our shepherd, even though he's not here in bodily form, gave us his spirit so our spirit could intercede for us. And he went to sit on the right hand on high so that he could be our mediator. So when we talk to God the Father, we talk through God the Son by the Spirit. And there's this, there's this continual communion this eternal conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that we are invited into. And we talk to him. And he talks back through his word, through the encouragement of his spirit, through the encouragement of other believers. And if we are in fellowship, and we are in prayer, and if we are in his word, he leads, he watches, and he talks. How comforted is that sheep? How scared is a sheep who knows exactly who his shepherd is, exactly where his shepherd is, and knows that his shepherd will never leave him, and his shepherd reminds him again and again and again. But how scared will the sheep be that forgets who his shepherd is, that wanders off on his own, that does not hear his shepherd's words, that can't even see his shepherd because he's so focused on his own appetites, that lead him away from the fold. Brothers and sisters, this is an encouragement to every one of you in Christ. Do not nibble your way away from the fold with your own selfish appetites. This is a beautiful encouragement, but the reverse is also true. If you forsake these things, the opposite will happen. All right, verse 23. Four, so why does the son need the parents' teaching? As you're, if you're walking in a dark world, what do you need? The commandment is a lamp. Remember, sin is a given here. It assumes, this passage assumes darkness. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. In a dark world, you need a lamp for your treacherous paths. And even though we can, um, we can be deceived in thinking, oh, the sun's out and, and it's beautiful. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And we need, to, we need a lamp for our path, even in broad daylight. 
But we also need light. We need understanding. We need illumination. Not just do we need our, our way, our steps to be guided, but we need our thoughts to be brought under submission to the word of God. We need to be illumined to the truth of scripture. We need the lamp for our path and we need the light for our, our minds. And then what's more, we need the reproofs of discipline because they are the way of life. Notice we see this again, we saw this a few weeks ago, the connection between discipline and life. We do not want to be undisciplined children. No one wants to be around undisciplined children. Parents, no one wants to be around undisciplined children. You don't want to be the crazy kid who's running out into traffic and screaming at your mom and throwing things. We need discipline because that is life. And this is how much the Father loves us that he disciplines us. And just like any successful journey, the Christian life requires direction and correction. It requires the staff and the rod. It requires light and it requires discipline. And if you are struggling in your Christian walk today, you are resisting one or both. To be fruitful, Solomon knows here that you need these teachings to light your way. And that you need the, the, them to discipline you, to protect you against your own desires. And so in this way, the parents are speaking scripture. Uh, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 94, 12 and 13. Blessed is the man who you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. To give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Until the wicked get theirs, we get discipline. Because God loves us. And so in this, um, this working through of the passage, we've seen sin that gets us to the law. The law that points us to the gospel. And the gospel is a call. The way of life or the way of death. Here's the way of life. Heed these commandments, listen to your parents, there will be a lamp, there will be a light, and his discipline is the way of life. The end of this section, where we'll be in a couple weeks, look at the end of chapter 7. This is the way of death. Everything in chapter 7 is leading up to the way of death. This, this whole section is, is bookended by the way of life here, and the way of death beginning in ch uh, chapter 7, verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, this is the adulteress. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low. In all her sins, or excuse me, in all her slain are a mighty throng. There's many of them. Her house is the way to Sheol and going down to the chambers of death. The gospel call is one of the way of life or the way of death. If you cry out to God for forgiveness, if you look to Christ to stand in your place, there is life. And the shepherd will guide you and lead you and watch over you. But if you reject him, if you listen to your sin, to your flesh, if you follow the adulterous woman, there is death. And many find the path to Sheol. And so that's what introduces verse 24. All of this is leading up to, to preserve you from the evil woman. Um, this is strange woman, foreign woman. Um, this has uh, married woman who is looking for a man, not her husband, in mind. That's the evil woman here. This is, this is the adulteress, the unfaithful wife. 
And so to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, we see that with the parallelism. And so before we get into this adulterous woman, I want you to think about what is the root sin underneath adultery? It's covetousness. It's wanting something or someone that is not yours. It's thinking what I don't possess is sweeter, is better. The grass is greener over there. It tells us that if we get something that we don't have already, it will make us happy. I'm, I'm unhappy, so what I need is something that I don't have. I'm missing something, so what I need is a change in my circumstances. Whether that be in someone else's bed or some other sin that promises fulfillment that can never deliver. That was the sin that was presented to Adam and Eve. What you don't have is you're not like God. Imagine the sales pitch. God has given you the Garden of Eden. He's given you perfection. No death, no sickness, no pain. All you can eat, every tree is delicious. And you get to walk with God. But the one thing that you're missing is you get to know evil. Gee, thanks. You get to be like God. That's the sales pitch. God has given you everything that you want. But it's always the one thing that we don't. That covetousness that looks over there, the, the, the enemy of contentment. And what is it that draws us into the forbidden fruit? But the smooth tongue. Because temptation doesn't just, you don't just jump into bed with somebody. It starts with flattery. It starts with subtlety. It starts with, with, with smooth words. Her appealing speech is what draws him in. The itching and the tickling of ears comes first. Well, that sounds good. She speaks a smooth language that his flesh is fluent in. Oh, yeah, that I recognize because that sounds good to me. This is what uh, Timothy er, is, is instructed in and, uh, when we read earlier from our corporate reading. So I want to go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just those, uh, that, that second section. So after the encouragement to continue in the teachings that you learned and the uh, sufficiency of, of, of Scripture, this is Paul's call to the church in that day and to the church in our day. So 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. We need to hear this again and again. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke. We need that correction. Reprove and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to shoot, or excuse me, to suit their own passions. That's what's going on today. That's what was going on in Solomon's day. Yeah, shoot their own passions. Sorry. That, I, I guess that, that works too. Um, yeah. But here's what the false teachings do. They itch and tickle ears. It is smooth speech. Because the false gospel doesn't present something that's, that's, that's far out. Doesn't say, go over here and worship this calf. That's just foolishness. No one would ever do that. Um, no one would ever do that. But it always starts with something that, that, that sounds good, that, that sounds moral. It's a, it's a competing gospel. Well, that sounds good enough. This sounds pleasurable to me, but it suits our passions. 
Verse 4, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, more shepherding language. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The way to a man's heart may be through his stomach, but the way to cast a spell on him is to flatter him. This is what we respond to. We as men, we love our egos stroked, and this is what sin does. It tells our flesh, our egos, exactly what we want to hear. Uh, We read this earlier in Romans chapter 16, uh, verse 17 and 18. But look at this, Paul's kind of final exhortation to the church. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. We must know the word of God. We must bind it to our heart and tie it around our neck. Otherwise, we won't be able to recognize the smooth speech and the flattery from the truth. This is what the parents are trying to warn Solomon in. And this is what I am trying to warn you in. Know the truth. Don't listen to the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Because I have talked with many of you. And you say, well, this sounds good. This is the first thing I hear, and this sounds good. But you don't take a step back and compare it to God's word, or maybe you don't have the foundation of God's word to compare it to. And so much can be avoided in this. So he goes on. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Here's the first step in preservation of lust. Guard your heart. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28. We should know this well. It begins in the heart. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Uh, Oh, wrong one. That's what happens when you just read before looking at the bottom. All right, so Matthew 5, 28. That was my fault for not filling that in. Uh, you should know this. Well, Matthew 5, 28. Matthew. Where he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It begins in the heart. Guard that first. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And we are drawn in by beautiful things. Last week, like the the fish and the shiny lures. It's the shiny new thing. It's the tree that that Eve saw and she says, it's a delight to my eyes. That looks good. That looks shiny. That looks new. I'm drawn after that. And it's just like our appetite for food. We eat with our eyes first, right? Like no one wants food that doesn't look appealing. But the stuff that is presented well and it's, and it's bright and it's put before you, we, we are eating with our eyes first. Lust is no different. Sinful temptation is, is no different. We eat with our eyes first. We see what is appealing to our eyes and then it begins to drive our stomach. And we're drawn in by the subtleties. Notice, she doesn't have to say anything. She just has to kind of bat her eyelashes and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. What comes to mind immediately is those old cartoons when Babs Bunny starts batting her eyelashes and Bugs Bunny is just done. This is how it happens. It doesn't take much. Because getting drawn into sin is not come over here and do this. It starts with the batting of an eyelash. It starts with a wink. It starts with with subtle words, subtle being drawn in. And then Paul has this kind of shot across the bow for the price, not Paul, uh, Solomon, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Ouch, only. 
What's he saying here? She's cheap. It's easy to attain. But the benefit doesn't last. And like all sin, it is very easy to get into, very difficult to get out of. It is alluring, but it is disappointing. But he actually steps it up a notch. Now when he says here, but a married woman, he's speaking of a married woman who's looking for an adulterous affair. But by contrast, the married woman hunts down a precious prey. Here's the contrast. A prostitute is expecting a transaction. You give me money, I give you what you want, and we're done. A married woman is looking for a substitute husband. A married woman is is hunting down to fulfill all you down to fulfill all of her life's desires, and she will take everything. Your life will be affected, your, your money, your reputation, even your, your very breath if her husband catches you. This is what this is leading up to. He's saying here that, that prostitute is a small thing, but you going with, with a married woman, everything changes. So he's not encouraging prostitution here. He's drawing a contrast. So we've got two parallel metaphors coming up after this. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? Or can one walk around in hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Same picture, same idea. You're playing with fire. Lust is this burning desire that you either stoke and you fan the flames and encourage it or you put it out and you have to put it out again and again and again. It is this, this fire close to the chest. Right, guys? Right, many ladies? This is not something that is easily put out and is not something to be played with. That's the, that's the uh, picture here. Would you walk near a fire with a soup made out of matches? Hopefully not. But how often do we do the same thing with our sin? We think we can get close. We think we can get closer and, and closer. And if we get away with it once and we don't feel we get burned, we get more emboldened. But we will get burned eventually. We could add one more metaphor here that ups the ante and makes it much more serious. Can you hold on to your sin and escape the fires of hell? Do you think that if you hold on to the things of this world, the things that itch your ears and appeal to your flesh, and you won't be punished, you're crazy. Those who play with fire will eventually get burned. This is why wise parents keep their children away from fire and away from the stove and away from outlets because children are just little big people. Because when we see something we shouldn't do, what's in that light socket? I want to stick my finger in there. What's in in, in that fire? Let me see if I'll actually get burned. Let me see if my, my parents' warnings will actually come true. This is the same thing that the father's doing with his grown son. Son, don't stick your finger in a light socket. Because, so is, begins verse 29, so is he, just like the verse before, who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. No one who goes into his neighbor's wife will go unpunished. And he who touches, everything you think touches means, it it means. He goes in and touches his wife. But did you notice that detail from Genesis 3? Eve, Eve added a uh, legalistic command to God's charge against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't touch that, that, that tree. 
But that was her, her downfall, was reaching out and touching it. The touching here is also the downfall. No one will go unpunished. Our God is omniscient. No sin goes unnoticed. Our God is just. No God goes unpunished. And every sin will be paid for, either by Jesus or by you. And so this is a general warning here too. If you think you can continue in sin, no one will go unpunished. Because if Christ has not taken your sins, your sins are still on you. So there's, there's, there's that side of it. Those who you, you think you can get away with the sin. Then there's the other side of it. Those of you who Christ has taken your sin and you keep trying to pay the penalty for it. Stop paying for what Christ has already paid for. If you are in him, praise God for his mercy and his grace. You cannot add to his work. God is just. He will make sure that your sins are punished. And so that they would be, he sent his son, the only one who could take all of your sins, all of my sins, past, present, and future, so that he would be our shepherd and lead and guide us into eternal life. Let's continue. The next uh, analogy here, kind of by way of illustration, people do not despise a thief if... He is indeed, if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. If he's indeed hungry, they're not going to despise him. His appetite is understandable if he's indeed hungry. But the contrast here is your pursuit of selfish desires is not understandable. And um, by the way, if you're stealing a TV, it is not for hunger uh, or robbing a CVS or whatever people are doing these days. But here's the point. Robbery is punctiliar, meaning it happens one time, and it is material. But adultery, it is emotional and it is perpetual. The pain continues, and when you get away with it once, the desire grows. So if you think the thief is stealing, and people can understand that, what about adultery? And so this is where it, it, it kind of gets ramped up a little bit. If he is caught... He will pay sevenfold. Anytime you see the number seven is the number of perfection, the number of completeness. He will pay every dime, meaning he will not get away with his sin, even if it takes all of the goods of his house. So you know what the writer of Proverbs is saying? You think if a thief steals and gets caught, he's going to lose everything in his house? What do you think happens if you get caught with another man's wife? What do you think will happen then? If you get caught stealing... There is recompense. You will pay back the penalty. But if you get caught stealing someone's covenant bonded spouse, how much worse will the penalty be? And that's why he says in verse 32, he commits adultery lacks sense. Because this is about no sense. The thief in 30 lacks food, but the adulterer lacks sense. This is stupid. You are walking by a fire in a suit of matches. You're trading moments of pleasure. For he who does it destroys himself. I won't often do this, and I'm dating myself by quoting Guns N' Roses, but this is very much an appetite for destruction. This appetite that leads for destruction. Don't Google it. Don't listen to anything on the album. Um, it's everything we're talking about in Proverbs. It's the antithesis of the gospel, but it is an appetite for destruction. So here's the question. 
this moment of pleasure that may lead to destruction. Would you eat the best steak ever made? I mean, drizzled in garlic butter and everything you've ever had if you knew you'd be on the toilet for a month (laughs) or a year. That's a terrible trade. But that's that's what sin offers. It tastes good on the tongue for a moment. But I'm going to regret this for a long time. And adultery has that added level of you are not just stealing from someone's material goods. You are harming their soul. There is an emotional connection here, the gift that's going to keep on giving. And what's interesting here in the Hebrew in verse 33, he will get wounds. Same word that is used in verse 29, he will get touched. So the one who touches another man's wife will get touched in return. The touch that you thought was pleasure will return for a touch of pain. You will get wounded. If you touch another man's wife and you will get dishonor. And your disgrace will not be wiped away. These are, this is public shame. Is your sin worth an eternity of disgrace and destruction that will never be wiped away? So I want to kind of pause for a moment here. And um, Paul has a concern when he writes to the church. His concern with the church is one of covenant faithfulness in marriage. So I want to look at 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 14. I know it was earlier in the uh, slides, but we'll look at it now. Notice the connection before we go any further with Eve and with, and with marriage, 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 4, excuse me, 2 through 4. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Amen. The gospel means we are pure virgins in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But Paul's picture to the church is you are a bride. You are to be faithful to your husband, one husband. Don't go after these these other adulterers, these adulteresses. Here's the difference between the prostitute and the adulteress. The prostitute just wants an exchange for money. The adulteress wants you to be united to her. Paul's saying, you are united to Christ. How could you dare unite yourself to a prostitute, to an adulteress? Verse 3, but I am afraid that... Just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is what's at stake. Because our, our, our sin is not just, yeah, I'm going to do this now and nothing will come of it. Every sin leads us away from Christ. Every sin causes us to be unfaithful to our betrothed husband. Every sin is repeating what Eve did in the garden. Yes, Satan, I would rather hear what you have to say than what God has to say. I would rather go after my own desires than to find my fulfillment in my beloved. And here's the warning. Verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. If you don't know the voice of the shepherd, if you don't know the gospel, if you don't know the truth, It is easy for us to believe the lies and be led astray. How many of us are led astray by the lies that we believe? How many of us become unfaithful to our groom because we give into our appetites? 
And here's what those appetites lead to. If you don't heed the words of the parents, if you don't run to the shepherd, if you hold on to your own sin, verse 34, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply your gifts. Basically, there is no amount of money you can pay to make the offended husband feel better that you slept with his wife. There is no gift you can give. You can't buy a clean conscience for yourself or a cleared memory for a husband who is understandably angry and jealous. Because in those days, the husband was allowed to seek punitive damages, and both the man and the woman who committed adultery were both to be put to death. This is deadly serious in, in, in their day. And his revenge is that burning, scorching punishment that we welcomed earlier. He's going to make your life miserable. But it's not just for adultery. So it is with our sin. There is no compensation. You can, you can put together as many gifts as you think. God is not some corrupt official. You can't bribe him with your little trinkets. You can't buy him with um, your good works. He doesn't need them. There is nothing you have that God needs. When it comes to our sin, there is nothing you can pay for your sin. There is nothing you can give. The anger of a holy God whose wrath is held against the sins of man, who is jealous for his son and the faithfulness of his bride. No compensation. Just like you can't buy a house with Monopoly money from our illustration of last week, you cannot buy eternal forgiveness with good works or this world's goods. Here's the good news of the gospel. You can't do it. But there's a Savior. But there's one who can. But there's one who can stand the wrath of God. But there's one who can stand as the righteous and holy one. And there's the one who did go righteous and holy to the cross. And if you fix your eyes on him, and if he is your shepherd, and if you turn from your sin, and you listen to the word of God, the instruction of your heavenly father, then he paid. And no amount of sin can erase what he paid for. And so in concluding, in the word of God, we have this parental advice from our father. This parental advice points us to a shepherd. The gospel, the good news the shepherd who is the word made flesh, who is our lamp, our light, and we have his discipline to counter our appetites. Because our appetites lead us to sin again and again and again. Our sin calls us to forbidden fruit, a moment's pleasure for monumentous pain. But if you pursue it, in the aftermath, there is nothing you can do or say. But if you heed the good news of Jesus Christ, if you heed the promise, the word of God made flesh, the eternal God, 
who became man to stand in your place, to become a new Adam, so that you no longer stand with the guilt of Adam and Eve. A new covenant in his blood. A meal that is promised in the bread and the wine that we will eat of forever. Not forbidden fruit, but the fruit of the vine that will last into eternity, the good wine that he will drink again with us one day when we see him. If you heed that good news, if your trust is in him, then you will be saved from the penalty of sin, but also delivered from the power of your appetites. But if you don't, you will not go unpunished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. You have every right to be angry at our sin. You have every right as a jealous husband over the bride that you have prepared for your son. But we thank you that you prepared us. Thank you that our husband stood in our place as our sacrificial lamb. And he calls us away from adulterous temptations because he loves us, because he watches over us, because he leads us, because he protects us, because he talks to us. Not in the smooth, small, uh, smooth voice of a temptress, but in the truthful voice of a savior, of our rock, of our redeemer. The gospel is good news, but it is only good news in light of the bad news. Never let us forget that we live in a dark world, that we are dark and sinful people. There's nothing we can do to pay for our salvation. But praise be to God our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that you took on flesh to stand in our place and sent your spirit as your under-shepherd to remind us of your word, to teach us, to talk to us, to guard us and preserve us until the day that you return. May we be found a faithful bride. May we put to death the appetites of our flesh that we may hear the words of well done, good and faithful servant. And may we be welcomed in as the spotless virgin betrothed to our husband. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.